0: Today, we're talking to a JAG of the past, Mike Green. Mike left the Navy after 20 years and back in 2004, and I think, Mike, You had just reported aboard to your last duty station, and that's where I last saw you, which was the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program in D.C. when I was back at Code 13. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time, and thanks for doing this, Tom. That was, in fact, my last job on active duty. It was a first-of-the-kind JAG Corps job. I think it still exists as a JAG Corps job, and it it put me actually in the place I am now indirectly. But yeah, it's good to catch up with you after several years.
0: So, Mike, looking at your LinkedIn profile, Program. I didn't realize this about you, but you originally came in the, the Navy as a naval flight officer.
1: Yeah, I was commissioned through the NROTC program in 1984. So many of your uh, listeners and probably some of the junior officers may not have even been born in 1984. Yeah, I came in through the NROTC program, was a naval flight officer. In the, and then P-3 was the you know the gold standard in aviation-based and submarine warfare. P-3 is now pretty much gone, replaced by the P-8. But yeah, that was that was the middle of the Cold War, administration we were training against and tracking and prepared to prosecute Soviet submarines that were deployed either to launch ballistic missiles against the homeland of the U.S. or attack our carrier battle groups at sea. So it was, uh, you know, it was a pretty exciting time.
0: And then you became a jet. Yeah. What went into that decision?
1: You know, a couple of things, and and I don't want to be a, a Debbie Downer right out of the gate here, but my very close friend from flight training, my next door neighbor in Pensacola, died in a plane crash and made his beautiful wife, a widow at the ripe old age of 24. And uh, this was back in the day before social media, cell phones, all that. So I found out about his death the day after his wife buried him. And it was tough. It was really tough. I also, when I was in the squadron in my junior officer tour, I was the legal officer. met a lot of Jags. Matter of fact, a guy by the name of Dan McCarthy, who was kind of a mentor to me, met him. I was at NAS Jacksonville and decided, you know, there's more to the Navy than just the warfighter community. As much as I loved my time flying, I really liked what the JAG Corps could do supporting the Navy, so applied for the law education program and was uh, fortunate to be selected and and started the LEP program in, in the fall of 88, transitioned and went to justice school uh, after law school, went to justice school in 91 and became a JAG Corps officer.
0: And it looks like you had a relatively short but interesting legal career. I say short only because four years as a naval flight officer, three years law school, and then... Long Beach, California.
1: I was young and impressionable at the time, went to USC as an undergraduate. You know, back then you pick college, at least I did, pick colleges based on what football teams played in the fruit bowls on New Year's Day or and not the few fruit bowls, but the name, the flagship bowl game. So USC was a powerhouse in uh, in the late 70s. And so I said, I want to go there because it's warm and sunny. I'm from New York originally. I said, it's warm and sunny on New Year's Day. So I want to go there. Fell in love with California in the 80s and decided I wanted to go back to California to, to get a, a law degree and get barred or admitted in California. So went to Long Beach. Long Beach at the time was a thriving base. More than 30 ships, a number of amphibs, a number of destroyers. And then literally right across from my office in the Nilsa back then there was just one legal organization. They were Naval Legal Service offices tied up directly across the street from my office were the Missouri and the New Jersey. So this is back in the day that, you know, the Reagan administration recommissioned the battleship fleet.
0: Yeah. And then you stayed in California by going to the postgraduate school for a couple of years then Guam. So you really had warmth for most of your Naval career, I see.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I followed the advice of the detailers, which was follow the advice of the detailers. And uh <laughs> (laughs) You know, I I selected for 04. I was working for Captain Tom Morrison at the Naval Legal Service Office in Long Beach. And Morrison said, you're in 04 now. I need a favor. I want you to go to Monterey. And, you know, it was arguably in our service territory for supporting activities there. And I said, okay, how long? And he said three years. I'm like, whoa, this is not just, you know, going to, do an admin board or a court-martial or something this is like the real deal he said yeah the person in the job got passed over for 06 and she's out so you're now a lieutenant who's about to become an 04 and you're going to go do an 05 job spent time there and then at the naval postgraduate school monterey the best quality of life tour in 20 years it is idyllic you know i don't know if the jag corps now does send people to get graduate degrees in monterey but what a great place then again, follow the advice of my detailer, who was going to be the commanding officer of the NILSO in Guam. And he said, hey, how'd you like to be my XO? And I said, ah, I don't know. And he goes, no, you're going to be my XO. And he wrote <laughs> the orders and I went to Guam and I got there and he goes, Tag, you're it. I'm leaving. Uh, I got a job at Sublant. Uh, I was there for all of about, I don't know, six weeks and he turned around and left. So I became the, uh, I guess, De facto, ordered in as XO, became the commanding officer in a matter of just a couple of, couple of months or so. And that
0: ended up being a short tour, I see.
1: Yeah. My successor was a spousal co-location. Her husband was an EOD officer, and there was a pretty significant EOD group in Guam. And the Navy's policy at the time, and I again, I hope it still is now, is if they're going to move somebody to a place, then they're going to try to find a job for their spouse. So I was there for you know barely a year and a half. Came back to D.C. I was stashed for a little while, but got picked up for the LLM program. So just kind of parked at uh, JAG headquarters for a couple of months and then got an LLM.
0: What was your LLM in?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, I wanted to be a warfighter. This is back well before September 11th, 2001. I wanted to be an international lawyer because that was, you know, what good naval officers did. And the JAG Corps said, no, we really struggle with environmental law issues. So we want you to be an environmental lawyer. And I said, well, how about both? How about an international environmental law program? And they said, yeah, that'll work. And I went to GW and said, hey, would you be willing to create an LLM in international environmental law? And they were great to work with. They were very flexible. And they said, yeah, you know, half your classes international, half your classes environmental, and then a thesis on an intersecting topic. It was great. Yeah, really, really great opportunity. Great experience. Great learnings at, in uh, in the LLM program. And a great a great. Cast the characters went to school there. You know the jag corps came to us and said, "Hey, we got enough money to send all of you to GW, or some of you to you know Harvard and Georgetown, and it's up to you. But we suggest you all agree that you'll just go to to GW together." So we did, and we had a great time, and and had a great group.
0: And then you ended up finishing the balance of your time in DC.
1: Yeah, so I went to Code Thirty Four. It was Thirty Four then. I think it's fourteen now. I think there were five of us that got LLMs in environmental law, and there were only two environmental LLMP-coded jobs open at the time. So I we went to Code 34, and I pursued a passion. This is the first time I actually crossed the detailer, and I, I think it hurt me in the long term, but I always wanted to go to the Hill. Uh, I thought lawyers would make great staff people on Capitol Hill, and I wanted to go to OLA, and that, that door just never opened. I applied for the legislative fellowship program. You know, there's a an, an all-NAV or NAV admin or whatever they're called, message, it goes out and announces all these great opportunities for mid-career officers. And I saw the message and I, I looked at the instruction and it was not it did, did not exclude Jaguar officers. So I talked to Captain Mark Horgan, uh, who was running Code 34 at the time, and I said, hey, I want to do this. And he goes, this is great. He said, I, I fully support it. called the detailer and said, hey, I'm applying for this. And they said, no, you're not. Can't afford to lose you from code 34. And I said, well, you know, why? Oh, well, you know, it's going to be a PCS move. I'm like, it's a no cost PCS. I'm going from the Navy Yard to Capitol Hill. No, 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 no. So I got a lot of blowback. So, you know, this is, again, first time I crossed the detailer. Captain Horgan checked in a couple of days later and he said, hey, where's the application? I'm ready to endorse it. And I said, well, the detailer said, I can't do it. And he said, well, the detailer is not the judge advocate general. And he turned around, walked out of the office, And he went to then Captain Tom Connolly, and Tom was a great guy. And Connolly called Guder and just railed on and said, this is stupid. This is great. You know, we got an opportunity to get a sharp guy, put him in front of members of Congress in this legislative fellowship. Why are you fighting it? They eventually said, yeah, go ahead and do it. But it was a kiss of death, because after that, I think I I lost my opportunity to have any fair shake with the detailers. But that said, I went and did a, a legislative fellowship on Capitol Hill and absolutely loved it. Worked for a member of Congress who, you know, funny, nobody knew by name, but he was what Capitol Hill followers call a workhorse. You know, they talk on the Hill about show horses, the people in front of the camera, and then there are the people that get things done. And he was chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Readiness. He controlled a third of the DOD budget. He represented the district in Virginia that had the Newport News Shipbuilding facility in it. And to the Navy, he was the king. His constituent was the only one in the country that could build and refuel aircraft carriers. It was a big deal. So when I got the fellowship with him, it was just, oh my gosh, you're going to work for Herb Bateman. What a gentleman, what a patriot. The guy was fantastic. So it was a great experience.
0: And coming out of there, you you ended up where I met you at Nuke Propulsion, and that's where you finished out. So what, what went into the decision-making process at the 20-year mark? You, you already kind of alluded to it that You maybe had sabotaged yourself or crossed the detailer and robbed yourself of some opportunities. It sounds like that played into it.
1: Yeah. So I selected for 05 in the middle of my fellowship tour. Uh, The detailer called and said, hey, you're an 05. Congratulations. You know, what do you want to do next? And that job ended in December. So it's an odd time for 04, 05s, 06s to be moving because they're typically roughly summertime moves. And I said, well, my wife doesn't want to leave. Not my wife, you know, I don't want to leave. My family doesn't want to leave. So anything in DC. And he said, I'll call you back in a couple of days. Called back and said, hey, how about naval reactors? And I said, you know, what's a naval reactor? Other than they're on submarines and aircraft carriers, I had no idea what the naval reactors program was about. Come to find out that Rick Over started it in 48 as a captain. He was forced out by Reagan in 82. But Reagan's parting gift to Rick Over was to codify the program in an executive order that Congress then put into Title 10. It's the only job in the Navy that has a statutory eight-year appointment. The guy who was running at the time, Skip Bowman, Admiral Bowman, worked on the joint staff for Powell in the first Gulf War. And he got to naval reactors and said, where's my JAG? And they said, Admiral, you should know, nukes hate lawyers. There's no lawyers here. And he goes, well, I'm a four-star, and every other four-star I know has a lawyer on his staff. He eventually wore the staff down, called the JAG, Admiral Guder, and said, Hey, I want a lawyer. And Guder served up a bunch of resumes. I got an interview, got a job. It was, again, it was the first of a kind. I established the job, first person in the job, loved it. Nukes hate lawyers still to this day. I'm still working in the nuclear industry. So, you know, call me crazy. But when it came time for me to think about, I was at 20 and I went to the job not thinking I was going to retire, but I knew I'd get close to 20. 41 years old and realized getting a job at 51 is probably harder than 41, number one, number two. I have a fairly marketable skill, nuclear power. And you know, at the time, LinkedIn didn't exist and it was hard to job network. But I went to all places back to GW, the Career Development Office, and looked through their job opportunities. And one was working for a law firm in DC doing nuclear power work. And I said to myself, well, I can spell nuclear so I can do it. Interviewed with a firm, Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, big international law firm, got a job doing commercial nuclear power law for electric utilities.
0: Wow. You talk about your niche areas of the law and the JAG Corps, and it sounds like you identified the opportunity identified identify the specialty and hit a home run right out of the gate.
1: Yeah, it was good. You know, when you say a home run, it was a good industry to be in. But, you know, one of my first jewels of wisdom is to be true to yourself. And I went to the law firm and, and they do, you know, they do work crazy hours. You know, the goal is to bill 2,200 hours a year, which means you work 2,600 hours because, you know, not everything's billable. But, you know, I was working hard, working really hard and, you know, commuting into the D.C. suburbs, Northern Virginia. So, you know, many a night I was riding home thinking, I don't know if this is what I wanted to do. I, I did it because I wanted to prove to myself I could do it, but I started to have, you know, those moments when you're commuting and your mind wanders and thought about my Navy career and thinking about where I was most rewarded. What did I enjoy most? Did I enjoy the NILSO environment where it's kind of like a law firm? There's you know 10, 20, 30, 40 lawyers, or do I enjoy being in-house, being one of one or one of two lawyers on a small staff working for the boss, whether it's the captain or the admiral. I worked for two flag officers who were very good to me, a two-star and a four-star, and I realized that I was most rewarded by being you know, one of a small number in a big organization. So I started to look at going in-house, and one of the firm's clients at the time was, and still is, a, an electric utility in Arizona that owns and operates the biggest nuclear plant in the country. I took a leap back then, and it was a good move. I really do like the in-house environment. So my first piece of, of wisdom post-Jag Corps is be true to yourself and think about how you were most rewarded when you were practicing your craft. Was it in a law firm environment like a NILSO or TSO, whatever they're called now, or was it on the staff of a flag officer reporting to warfighter somehow? Or for that matter, in academia, you know, I, I could have gone... I think maybe gone into academia. Postgraduate school is uh, is the flagship graduate program in the Navy. So, and not that I dislike academia, I just like working in a profession or in an industry that has a, a broader purpose.
0: So that job with the nuclear company that was I'm looking here. You said you did ten years, almost eleven years out in Arizona with them.
1: Yeah, actually, it's close to 1516. So I'm still in Arizona, came here in September of 06 and started out as just a, a lawyer working for a manager doing nuclear regulatory work, which is very, very niche. You know, I, I wasn't getting a lot of feedback from the the line organization. So I went to the general counsel and said, look, are you hearing anything about my performance? And she said, no, but just ask him. So I sat down with the boss and said, you know, I mean, I want to know how I'm doing it. You know, i had been with him for about a year and a half, two years. I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm meeting your, your expectations. And he looked at me and said, our contracting sucks. I want you to fix it not you're doing a good job it's here's another opportunity so by being present with the client because i you know i could have had my office in the headquarters building but i chose my office at the power plant where i was sitting three doors down from the chief nuclear officer who's kind of like the chief executive officer for the nuclear organization it's it's a title in the nuclear industry you know by being present being there early morning late night or you know as he's wandering around the building looking for someone to talk to my sphere started to grow I became more of a generalist in the nuclear power industry, so picked up commercial, picked up labor and employment, picked up litigation, and then eventually got promoted into a management position to manage those functions. But a couple of years ago, the nuclear power industry started to face some pretty heavy headwinds. You recall Fukushima happened in 2011. You know, the nuclear industry in the U.S. said, won't happen here. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said, yeah, you know, it won't happen here, but we're still going to make you a plan for it not happening here. So the industry collectively spent about $3 billion to harden against natural disasters that may never happen, but really added to the cost of production. And at the same time, there's investment in production tax credits for wind and solar energy. So nuclear became economically unattractive. In certain parts of the country, they were getting squeezed out by renewable energy that was you know, basically subsidized by investment and in production tax credits. And nuclear plants started to close there was a new chief nuclear officer taking over at the time and he asked for my candid feedback and i said you know you need to be relevant because if you're not relevant you're not going to be in business if people don't want to buy what you're selling, you're going to be out of business. And he said, great input. How'd you like a job? And I said, "Okay, what's that? He said, you're going to manage our policy and outreach and try to convince the country and the the stakeholders that influence decision making on nuclear power, you know, state and federal legislators and regulators. You're going to try to convince them that, that there's a role for nuclear power. So I broadened my sphere. I kept the legal work, but kept communications, strategic planning, and a bunch of other cats and dogs. But it was all about trying to ensure that consumers of electricity and the stakeholders involved in regulating the electric power industry understand what goes into it and what value attributes nuclear power brings to the equation.
0: Then you moved over to the hydrogen industry.
1: Yes. So among the issues that the industry was facing was the people who managed the electric grid were asking the nuclear plants to back down to make way for wind and solar. Solar is great at noon every day, particularly in Arizona, but seven o'clock at night, it's useless. And that's when nuclear power is needed the most. That's when power is needed the most hottest part of the day in Arizona. And there's no solar available. So the operators are saying, hey, back the plant down in the daytime so we can take all this solar clean energy, but run the plant at night. And you know, there's a simple equation that the electric power industry uses to determine the value of, of energy. It's the, the cost per megawatt hour. So the dollar goes in the numerator and the megawatt output goes in the denominator. And if you reduce the denominator, the overall number goes up. You're better off running nuclear plants 100% of the time. And they were asking us to run it 50% of the time. And and you just can't make make them make money. So my, I don't know if it was brilliant or not, but my brilliant idea was to try to take the energy that we may be not using during the day and put it into something useful. At the time, the Department of Energy, the Office of Nuclear Energy was looking at ways to basically capture that excess energy. And one particular energy attribute they were looking at is the production of hydrogen. So take nuclear energy in the daytime when solar is shining or in the nighttime when wind is blowing, which, you know, wind, for whatever reason, blows more at night in the Midwest. But capture that energy, put it into hydrogen. That hydrogen then has zero carbon intensity and use the hydrogen as an energy storage medium. So got into pursuing DOE funding to make hydrogen and had a great time doing that. Yeah there's an entire cottage industry emerging around production of of clean hydrogen its use as a as a fuel supply.
0: And then what was your decision to to leave that side of the business and where you are now?
1: Yeah so one of my other pearls of wisdom is culture is everything. And I mentioned earlier learning from your own mistakes and the mistakes of others. I got to tell you that the culture in the organization was not healthy and it was hard to recognize it. And I had tolerated, but it's kind of like the, you know, the analogy of the frog in the the pot of boiling water. If you sit in the pot as the temperature is raised, you don't notice it. But if you get thrown into a boiling pot of boiling water, you're going to feel it right away. I was in the middle of it and didn't see it and had a lot of headwinds from senior executives who were undercutting this whole hydrogen program thing. You know, the CEO wanted to do it. Nobody else wanted to, but he didn't have the courage to step up and tell people, you know, candidly to get in line. It it was just a it was a toxic environment. I decided it was time to change the organization I was in. You know, and the hard part when you're looking for a job either after the JAG Corps or if you've left the JAG Corps and you're, you're looking to go somewhere else is taking the temperature of the culture in the organization you're going to. Again, the organization I was in was not healthy. I started to, you know, to look and came across an opportunity that in the interview process struck me right away that everybody in the organization was aligned around the purpose I interviewed with eight people for the job. I I just took about two weeks ago, interviewed with about eight people. They all were very much aligned around what the goal was. And my last interview, I guess the ninth interview was with the CEO. And he said, what'd you think? And I said, well, I got to tell you, everybody in this organization is aligned around your mission. And he said, that's good. And I said, no, you don't understand. I come from an organization where there is not alignment around the mission. And when that doesn't exist, you're crippled. You know, your, your path is potentially going to be fatal because everybody needs to be singing off the same sheet of music. And, you know, And When I was in the Navy, I never understood why the Navy was so hard on commanding officers. Now I know. CEOs set the culture and the tempo and the direction of the organization, at least a good CEO does. If the CEO either A, doesn't do that, or B, enables and allows an organization to become unhealthy, the the mission of the organization, it's not going to succeed. I took a job, as you mentioned, Tom, a couple of weeks ago with a company named TerraPower. TerraPower was started in about 2008 by a guy by the name of Bill Gates. Gates' mission, now that he's made an awful lot of money, is to give it all away. And, and not just to give it away, but to, to use it for solving some of the world's problems writ large, you know, hunger, public health lack of electricity, either affordable or electricity at all. There's a billion people in the world that don't have electricity. So Gates started this company in 2008 and you know, believes that nuclear power is a way to provide carbon-free energy for the world. He succeeded, uh, not he, but the organization succeeded in getting some Department of Energy funding to build the first-of-a-kind reactor for a customer. That customer is potentially going to be a utility that serves the Western U.S. named Pacific core So we're, we're in negotiations now with Pacific core but the idea is you know, Gates wants to put his money into commercializing nuclear power. He's also discovered some really cool technologies around nuclear medicine and using nuclear medicine, some some real significant advances in nuclear medicine to fight cancer.
0: Up until you went to Naval Nuclear Reactors, had you thought much about retirement or what you would be doing in retirement before you went there?
1: Not at all. You know, it's funny, Tom. I went through the NROTC program, and the general rule is people in NROTC incur a four year service obligation. But what they don't tell you is, but if you go into anything that requires any amount of training, you'll have a different obligation. So at the time, for naval flight officers, uh, the obligation was five years from the time you got your wings. So instead of being able to get out in 88, I was looking at getting out in 90. And, and again, at the time, I wasn't really thinking about it. And then I got. Picked up for the LEp program and that had a two for one payback. So my service obligation got pushed out to thirteen years, and I was just loving it. I'm like, I'm not even thinking getting out's an issue. So I'm just going to keep pushing the get out, the forced get out date. Then I did the LLM program and that tacked on more. And by the time I got to approaching twenty. I was still in obligated service and thinking, I don't have to worry about retiring. I'm just going to keep doing this forever. But then, I, and again, I don't know what it was, but then I got to the point where I got a plan for the fact that I'll, I'll get a nice pension and some retirement benefits, Healthcare being very important, but you know, what am I going to do? And it really didn't occur to me until I got into the job at Naval Reactors that I could get to 20 in that job, be ready to retire and start thinking about life after retirement. Had not to that point given it any thought at all. So,
0: Mike, you've given us some great points to consider. I think the first one you reminded us of is don't forget about your law schools and their career placement offices, that they can still be a resource even in this day of LinkedIn and other social media. But what other recommendations or thoughts do you have for folks that are getting ready to punch out and start that next chapter?
1: Yeah, these are all more philosophical, Tom. So take it with a grain of salt. But I, I go back to some of those experiences I, I had in my, actually all of my Navy career. My first calling out of commissioning was flight training. One of the things I remember very clearly almost 40 years ago is prioritize, aviate, navigate, and communicate. You know, if the airplane is not straight and level and going in a, in a bad direction, meaning like you're going to crash you know, write the airplane and and make it fly. Next, make sure you're not flying into enemy territory if that's not where you're intending to go. So make sure you're, or you're not gonna navigate into the side of a mountain. And then third, talk, unless you're in an MCON condition, say, hey, you know, my airplane's broke or I don't know where I am. Having those real basic priorities very much apply to aviators, but I heard a a similar version of it later in my career at Naval Reactors. So come full circle 20 years later, I was working with a guy who was a big fan of uh, Vince Lombardi. He said one of Lombardi's famous expressions was your priorities are God, family, and the Green Bay Packers in that order. Have clear priorities. And whether it's aviate, navigate, communicate, or God, family, and the Green Bay Packers, or your version of it, think about what your priorities are. For those who do have a significant other or more significant others like children, you got to put the family pretty close to the top of that list. And if you're religious, I argue that putting God at the top of the list is important. Your profession comes below those. But that said, you've got to have a passion and commitment to what it is you're going to do. If you're a career prosecutor in the JAG Corps and you're looking for a job and you want to work in criminal sector, public defender, DA's office, U.S. attorney's office, don't decide that I'm going to be a a defense counsel now, if you've always been a prosecutor and your real heart is in going after the bad guy. So, you know, maybe not a good example, but the point is be committed to what it is you're going into. I kind of stumbled into electric power, but, you know, Americans take it for granted. The lights are always on. They rarely go out, but places in the world don't have electric power. It's about as close as you come to being in a service profession without being in direct personal service to others. I enjoy the electric power sector. I think it's Technology is fascinating, but it's providing a good or a service, depending on how you describe electricity, is something that is ubiquitous and most people take for granted. But knowing that electric power is there to power your home or your your hospital or your, your business is extremely important. So have a passion for that industry sector you're going into. The other is, again, I said it before, but I I can't emphasize enough that culture is everything. It's really hard to know the culture of an organization going in. So when you're looking for a job, you got to find those connections, whether direct or indirect through your network, to try to really get a bead on what the culture is like. I actually opened the door for a couple of former colleagues of mine from the Navy nuclear program to come into the nuclear power business. And I have been at the company for a couple of years and said, this is who we are, good or bad. I just want you to know just go into your choice with your eyes wide open, but be willing to recognize when culture is having an adverse impact on the organization and its mission. And, you know, I think the last piece is to own it, whatever it is and whatever situation you're in is to own it. You can blame the other guy, you blame the boss, you can blame the client, but at some point, but you got to own your situation where you are in your job. If you're not happy, you're the only one that can control whether you're gonna be happy long-term. I don't regret any decisions I've made. I think sometimes I've stayed with an organization too long and, you know, my wife talks to me, she's, she's my greatest advisor. My wife and I talk about my, my professional life quite a bit. And our collective observation is in the Navy, you typically might get a, a three-year set of orders. If you don't come in exactly when your commanding officer or the flag officer comes in, you're probably going to lose your commanding officer or commanding general or the admiral, you know, halfway through your tour. The longest you're going to see an organization's leadership is two to three years. You learn to ride it out. And it seems like organizations like the Navy, been around for 200 some odd years, can ride out bad leaders fairly well. But now I understand why the Navy is so hard on on commanding officers, because they can really cripple an organization and its effectiveness. So
0: Mike, incredible story, incredible points raised there. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. You look well. And I can't believe that it's probably been, gosh. 20 to 22 years since I last saw you.
1: Yeah, it's been a while. And and that's the sad part is I retired 18 years ago. It's almost like it never happened. And it's really too bad because I, you know, I'm looking back, I'd love to be 60 and be in the JAG Corps, but I know that the, the military needs that sense of continuity and young people coming in on the front end. And I don't want to call myself old, but more mature people exiting on the back end to keep that throughput because the Navy as an organization, I think is bigger than any of us. And I think the sooner we realize that, the sooner we can come to grips with what's next. But yeah, whether you're a first tour lieutenant or you're a captain who's, you know, got 20, Four twenty-six 26 years, never too late to start thinking about what your, your exit path ought to be.
0: And it goes by faster than you think.
1: Oh, yeah. Real fast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Green. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG
1: Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.